This is Macro Horizons, episode 20. Summer is coming. Brought to you by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the holiday-shortened week of May 27th, and a friendly reminder that a reference to the change of seasons inspired by a medieval fantasy epic has a limited shelf life. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. So, Ian, what are your biggest takeaways from the trading we've seen this past week? The recent week did teach us a few important things in the Treasury market. The first was that yields can push right up against the bottom of the prevailing range without any significant real economic data, at least domestically. The big push that we saw was largely a function of the escalation of the trade war. This isn't new information. At the end of the day, it's still all about the trade war with a backdrop of the bullish seasonals. 10 and 30 year yields are adhering to a downward sloping channel that we've been tracking A question that we've heard a number of times is just how patient will the Fed be? What strikes me as interesting in this context is patience as it's being defined by the Fed presumably is patience holding off on another rate hike. The market, on the other hand, is interpreting it the opposite way. It's patience in delivering the first rate cut of a cycle. Now, admittedly, at this point in the cycle, there is a fair amount of disagreement in terms of what the market is pricing in and what Fed officials are continuing to suggest. Nonetheless, we do continue to think that the next move is going to be a cut. It will be in the second half of this year, and it will come simply because inflation continues to underperform. And while domestic growth might be on a strong enough footing, we don't see any significant upside risks there. In fact, in contemplating what it would take to see a significant shift higher in domestic potential GDP, it always comes down to productivity in some way, shape, or form. And at this stage in the broader cycle, our expectations are to see a true productivity increase, it would have to come in the form of automation. Not necessarily simply automation on the manufacturing side. That is a trend that has been underway for many years. But a push further into automation on the servicers side. Think about it. The number of interactions that one used to have with individuals on that entry-level service sector space which have been simply replaced by an app or some other form of electronic automation. What this has done is it's been obviously very good in terms of corporate profitability, keeping costs low. But the flip side is it has further served to increase the divide between the low-skill, low-wage earners 
and the higher skill, higher wage earners, which again creates a reasonable amount of implied slack in the economy. Now, as the unemployment rate continues to drift lower and lower, and we do start to see some upward pressure on average hourly earnings, the question then becomes how long before that translates through to demand-side inflation. We have seen some inflation over the course of the last two years, but it hasn't necessarily been the type of inflation that the Fed would have anticipated this far into the cycle. It has largely been either tariff-related which is supply side, or a function of fluctuation of other commodity prices. Again, that's supply side inflation and not the type that the Fed would look at as long-term or sustainable. Rather, they would simply consider it as a tax on the consumer. It's interesting that the New York Fed recently published a estimate about what the most recent round of tariffs will cost the average household. The number that they came up with was $831 for the most recent round of tariffs. Now, this isn't being characterized as solely an upward impulse for inflation, but rather as a tax on households at a point when domestic consumption is very much in the limelight as the second quarter continues to unfold. The Fed's wager on this transitory slowdown in consumption is really the biggest unknown for the domestic economy as we move forward with an increasingly patient Fed. So twos tens, why won't you steepen? That is a great question and one that we've certainly been contemplating here on Team Strategy. On the one hand, it does make sense when you have a reasonably powerful flight to quality that the 10 and 30 year yields would drop in a classic duration grab. But on the other hand, we would also expect the market's willingness to price in a rate cut to increase given what we have seen transpire over the course of the last couple of weeks. But it's going to be hard to too aggressively price in that rate cut given Fed speak hasn't really opened that door. I mean, we've talked a lot about three month versus twos. Twos can invert versus three months because the next move is very likely going to be a cut, but it's limited how far the three month twos inversion can go, at least up until either the data or Fed speak makes a more coherent argument for twos to rally under 2%. And even more recently, we saw Bostic come out and say explicitly he does not see a rate cut by the end of this year. And given he is one of the most dovish members of the committee, albeit non-voting this year, I think it's telling that despite what the market is saying, even someone with his policy views is not willing to throw in the towel yet. Well, I would add that Fed speak tends to hold the party line up until the point in which there is a collective shift. And so by watching for that inflection point, I think that will be extremely informative in terms of the shape of the yield curve. So Ian, what do you think, if you were to list your top three reasons for that inflection point to occur, what would come to mind? Inflation, inflation, and inflation. Now, I'm taking that straight from Powell because he has said on a number of occasions that the trajectory of inflation is 
key for the next rate move, whether it ends up being a hike or a cut. And we've seen inflation steadily decline over the last several months, not to truly problematic levels. No one's talking about deflation or anything comparable to what we've seen in Japan. However, the persistent underperformance of inflation needs to be addressed at some point. Beyond that, the Fed has focused a great deal on this notion that the weakness in consumption that we saw during the first quarter is going to be transitory, and we will see spending come back in the second quarter. If that doesn't materialize, the combination of flagging consumption and underperforming inflation might be enough to get the Fed to move. So to push you a little bit on the inflation thought, how much weight do you put on backwards-looking inflation versus forwards? I guess what I mean by backwards is data releases about what's already occurred versus forward inflation expectations, either market-based or survey. The Fed has historically tried to emphasize inflation expectations over realized inflation. But there's a point in which realized inflation underperforms far enough that it starts to weigh on inflation expectations. Now, we haven't really seen that as much as one might anticipate. Part of the reason is since the beginning of the year, energy prices have steadily increased. And given the relevance of headline CPI and energy prices to the tips market, when we look at the five-year, five-year forward break-even space, what we can see is that the market is holding a range that's been in place for some time, certainly hasn't broken out remarkably lower, nor has it broken out strikingly on the upside. I'd also point out that to your comment on energy prices, it's not just headline. Headline strips out food and energy, but there is some strong residual correlation into core PCE from oil prices. So, And that makes intuitive sense, right? Like broader prices can be impacted by input costs for businesses, Input costs are heavily energy. So sure, you can strip out the headline impact on food and energy, but increases are going to be inflationary, decreases are going to be deflationary, even in the core series. Well, let us not forget the vast majority of the upward pressure that we have seen on core inflation over the course of the last 24 months really has been a function of shelter costs, rent and owner's equivalent rent. And that is far less impacted on a monthly basis by energy prices. And in that vein of the expectation side of the inflation picture, we saw just last week that the University of Michigan survey, and specifically the inflation expectation subcomponent of that survey, jumped from the bottom of the range to the top of the range. So despite what we've seen in the backwards-looking data, like you said, John, there is still, at least in some parts of the market, the expectation that inflation is going to come back. To be fair, those inflation expectations in the UMICH survey are going to be relatively closely correlated with energy prices, I would assume. And that's probably giving the average household who picks up the phone in this survey a lot of credit. Like, not to dismiss all these sentiment surveys altogether, but I try to picture friends and family who don't keep a close eye on the economy. How can one precisely forecast inflation five to 10 years forward? It's difficult. So sure, some of it should come out with a noise, 
But in general, it's helpful to have a grain of salt with these numbers. Even for those of us who do follow the economy relatively closely, I can say with a straight face, it's difficult for me to put a good number on where I would expect inflation to be running in five years. And somewhere between two and three percent is a very easy call because it's simply what we have seen historically. And to a large extent, it's what the Fed is actively trying to achieve. To that point, as long as it just kind of trends sideways, that just kind of implies average expectations are not increasing, not decreasing. That's probably got to provide some comfort to FMC members. And how does that stabilization and inflation expectations play out in the shape of the curve? Well, at the moment, and as you pointed out earlier, Ben, the twos tens curve is going to be stubbornly in a range with very little incentive to break out in favor of a steepener. Again, this is all predicated on the notion of a bull steepener led by a rally in the very front end of the curve. Moving further out the curve, however, a 530s cyclical re-steepening, which has been underway, frankly, for several months at this point, will continue to press higher or steeper as the assumption is inflation is building in the system and eventually will flow through, if for no other reason the Fed is actively promoting it, and investors will require incrementally more yield to go further out the curve. The flip side there is that the first leg of the 530s re-steepening was actually driven by the idea that the five-year sector had gone from pricing in a terminal policy rate for this cycle north of 3% to effectively 240 and then ultimately below as investors started to look through this cycle. And the very long end of the curve, the 1030 spread has really been quite perplexing for some time. We saw a fair amount of steepening earlier this year that was ultimately resolved with a little bit of downward flattening pressure. Although I do have to say of all of the points in the curve that leave me the most perplexed, that's definitely my go-to spread. And that's certainly an interesting discussion on the spread between 10s and 30s. What about the overall level of these yields? How do you think about the long bond yielding well under 3% in a world with equities still relatively close to all-time highs and strong sentiment by a large number of metrics? Well, those latter two points, higher equities and reasonably strong sentiment, are largely a function of Powell's pivot that occurred earlier this year. What we saw in November and December was that as rates pushed higher, we started to see the equity market stumble. When the broader correction occurred, then that got Powell to change course. And so to a large extent, the near record high equity prices, which flow through to strong consumer confidence, are really predicated on an easier Fed. An easier Fed in a world where there is effectively no term premium implies that 10 and 30-year yields are going to comfortably stay below 3% for the foreseeable future. That doesn't mean that one day we won't see 30-year yields sustainably trading above 3%, but it just seems unlikely that that will occur during this particular cycle. Recall that we also learned in early January that the balance sheet is always going to be a tool for the Fed. And as you've pointed out in the past, John, that implies that if things get bad enough, the Fed will come in 
do another round of bond buying, and that should limit the steepness of the curve. And it will also limit the level at which we would expect 10 and 30-year yields to be able to back up even on relatively optimistic economic performance. What do you make of the argument that the market, at least in three-month LIBOR, has already cut for the Fed? Do you think that's compelling or intellectually consistent? Well, if you look at the timing of the move in three-month LIBOR, it really does mirror what we saw in terms of the pivot from the Fed. And so the argument that LIBOR is already cutting for the Fed, I'm certainly sympathetic to it, but it was still under the control or it was as a result of the Fed's decision to stop hiking rates. So to a large extent, part and parcel of the same thing. One could also make the same argument for mortgage rates, which are over 80 basis points lower than the highs. So another way to say that is that the Fed, in a way, was easing for the Fed? I'm fed up of your jokes, Ben. (sighs) On that topic, what do you think about supply in here, Ben? Yeah, so supply comes back from its two-week nominal vacation anyway, and we get twos, fives, and sevens in a compressed auction schedule on Tuesday and Wednesday. So Ben, you obviously watch the auctions very closely when Treasury leans on a similar compressed auction schedule. Have you noticed anything different in terms of the outcome, auction performance, statistics, anything, or is it kind of steady as she goes? No, I think your latter point is exactly right. Given how well the Treasury Department forecasts and telegraphs to the market what the auction schedule is going to be, there really isn't going to be anyone that's quote unquote caught off guard by this updated schedule. And in fact, it's my expectation that what we've seen so far this year, whether it be the front end or in 10s and 30s, is domestic investment funds are still going to be the big story in the supply takedown, even with twos, fives, and sevens all trading well through effective Fed funds. As we've talked about for the past 15 minutes, I think the fact that the next move from the Fed is almost certainly going to be a cut makes that outright richness pretty hard to fade. And if anything, I think the liquidity the auction provides is really just a good opportunity for investors to add exposure to the front end at yields that in six months, eight months, 12 months time are likely going to be much lower. So interesting. And just as an aside, we're all on the same page in terms of the relevance of the auctions and our generally constructive outlook. One of the questions that I get occasionally is, why does the Treasury Department have certain truncated schedules? I guess I'd call this a John Splanable moment. Ha. Huh. So Treasury does this as a operational risk measure. Basically, they want to make sure that they have a day in between auction and settlement in case anything goes wrong. Frankly, I find it very prudent if you're borrowing tens of billions of dollars in an auction, you want to make sure that you're able to borrow that money come settlement day. And as a result, occasionally when you have certain quirks with the calendar, so for example, in this coming week, Friday is the 31st, they want Thursday as a buffer day, so they're packing the auctions on Tuesday and Wednesday. Normally they could spread it out, except Monday is a holiday. One thing that I would add for people who have been in the treasury market for a very long time is that buffer day is actually new. It wasn't always part of the auction schedule. Yeah, it was only really implemented in the past few years. 
And uh, part of it is just a reflection of how huge some of these auction sizes have gotten. Treasury can settle well over $100 billion in any given day. We talk a lot about market risk, but as anyone who's trading out there knows, operational risk can also be a factor as well, both for investors, but also for the government. Well, since there's no clear transition away from operational risk on the federal level, it is interesting to note that as the unofficial start of summer, the Memorial Day weekend has historically marked the beginning of slower trading conditions in the treasury market. Now, for a market that trades between 450 to 500 billion in treasuries a day, to say that we're going into a slower period where the market will be trading less than that isn't really suggesting that liquidity in the treasury space is going to come under any material pressure, but rather that this tends to be the time of the year in which trends that have developed coming into the summer simply extend rather than truly reverse, unless, of course, there is a very significant macro event. To that point, I wouldn't expect a precipitous drop-off probably ever, but the thinning activity probably won't occur in mass, at least until after the June FOMC. That would be a relatively major macro event, an update on the SCP, long run dot, 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 dot. But let's hold off on getting into that for now, as that's a problem for future weeks. Well, good thing for us that we have a lot more weeks. And a lot more problems. In the week ahead, we'll have a holiday-shortened week as a function of Memorial Day. It's typically a week that is characterized by relatively light staffing levels. So in that context, we don't expect there to be a great deal of paradigm-shifting new information or price action. That said, the end of May does offer the all-important core PCE print. Expectations are for the year-over-year number to drop to 1.5%, which in and of itself will prove a bit of a challenge for the Fed. Not necessarily a rethink of the direction of monetary policy, but certainly further confirmation that the low inflation environment is here to stay. On Tuesday, the Case-Shiller Index will also offer some context for the direction of housing prices. It's notable that we've only recently started to see the three-month moving average drop below zero in terms of the direction of housing prices. This is relevant because the core inflation series has continued to be propped up by shelter costs and OER. There's an intuitive lag between a drop in home prices and that flowing through to the inflation series of about 9 to 12 months. And so some of that weakness seen at the end of last year won't really start to materialize until the second half of this year. Again, further complicating the inflation outlook. Global trade will remain an issue with the backdrop of the escalating trade war and any additional retaliatory measures from either side certainly leaves a fair amount of headline risk in the treasury market. We do continue to expect that the shape of the yield curve will resolve itself in a steeper two stins curve. However, admittedly, it has been extremely range bound over the course of the year with the low nine basis point mark versus the high or the steep of 25 basis points. Continuing to chop along in the middle of this range 
isn't necessarily definitive insofar as it doesn't change our medium or long-term outlook for the steepener, it does, at least on the margin, present an incremental challenge to the timing of that move, however. There's a fair amount of supply this week with the two, five, and seven-year auctions. While they do occur on a truncated schedule, we don't really expect that that will translate through to particularly strong or particularly weak demand. The only risk in terms of light auction participation comes as a result of the relatively low outright yield levels. It's always difficult to sell supply at the highs. In light of the relevance of consumption during the second quarter, we'll be watching the personal spending and personal income figures on Friday to offer further context for the weakness that we saw in the April retail sales print. And of course, looking even further ahead, we have the employment report on the 7th of June with expectations for an additional 200,000 jobs and an unemployment rate at 3.7, it's difficult in this context to make an argument that we're at anywhere but full employment or pretty close to it. The big question still remains, why haven't the increases in average hourly earnings translated through to real demand-side inflation? That is an open question that we do not expect to be resolved anytime soon. We've reached the point at which we would like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who's managed to listen this far. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the unofficial beginning of summer. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at B-M-O dot com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. 
you should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. Emo assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and Bimo accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. Bimo assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to Bimo and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. Bimo and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, Bimo's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.